Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Had it. Yo, welcome to Rat Sal Review. What's up, guys? Hey. hey. Uh, I don't know who needs a bigger facial reconstruction surgery, me or my puppet. I can't tell at this juncture. <laughs> Probably you. But today right. we are joined by Carl Kennedy. I am pronouncing that last name right, Carl. Perfect. 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 Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Welcome aboard the legend, the man himself. Woo! Yes, drummer, producer of, uh, as you can see behind behind him, uh, some of my favorite albums uh, like Anthrax uh, and Overkill and uh some other stuff I can't see because I got the small screen here, but uh, very good producer for a lot of great albums and a very great drummer as well. And uh, you have a new band out called the 450s. We'll get to that mm-hmm. at some point. And um, like I mentioned, oh, you're also of the Rods as well. Uh, and actually, that you guys just kind of reformed not too long ago, right? It's actually been 12, 15 years ago. Something oh, it's like been that, that long. Okay. All right. It's been a long time. Yeah. A short while, Lane. Short while. Short while. <laughs> seems seems like yesterday. Right. Uh, what was the reason for you guys to get back together? Um, we'd never really officially broken up. We had okay. been. I was producing. David bought a restaurant, which has been the longest running endorsement of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, we always go there and eat. That's the big joke with the rods. So let's hurry up and finish writing these songs. So we can go eat um, <laughs> because the Hollywood is such great food. It's an Italian American restaurant. Right. And, uh, but Gary was playing with Savoy Brown and he was on the road. I was working with bands producing. David had the restaurant he bought. So he was busy with that and nothing was really happening for the rods. We didn't have a manager. In fact, at the time um, things had kind of were just gigs were few and far between. And we had a, a manager that we wound up losing, but um uh, his comment to us, no one gives, and I won't use the F word because I don't know whether it's, yes, his thing was what his quote to us was nobody gives a fuck about the rods. Wow. So this, yeah. So we were, this was at the uh, dawning of the internet. And then of course, once things happened with the internet, we realized that we had fans around the world who were hardcore devoted fans. So, but at that point, nothing was happening. And so we just sort of, stayed friends but we didn't really didn't do anything so it wasn't any kind of uh, problem within the band uh, discord or whatnot we just sort of stayed friends and went on and raised our families and uh, then one day our good friend al falso the quote-unquote rod father um 
who had a music store where we formed and he would, when we were struggling and had no money, he would be, he'd pull out this big wad of money and go, Hey, go get me some coffee across the street. And uh, he would pay for all of our coffee. And uh, so he was just a sweet guy. We loved him to death for forever. And uh, so when he passed away, they had a benefit and they asked the rods to play because the girls used to go to bed listening to the rods rehearse. We used to rehearse at night until nine thirty or 10 in his warehouse, which was right across from where they lived. So they invited us to play. We played and uh, I was like, wow, this is like, we haven't stopped playing. And uh, so then we thought, well, let's carry on. And then David had done an album, third wish, which was a killer album. And uh, we thought, you know what, let's, uh, let's start playing. Let's start recording an album. That's yeah, simple as that. I wish, I wish I had a better story about what the grand plan was, but the, but that's the story. Yeah, no, that's cool though because you know to to see that you were still wanting to do the band and continue with it is you know it's great because a lot of people once the band ends that's you know they're kind of done with it. But it's cool I, to I had a, want to continue that. I had an issue uh, or a concern, and that was that I've seen had seen a lot of bands who were early '80s bands, and yeah, you know, I'm not going to name names, but some of them were just a reasonable facsimile of themselves. They were watered down, lukewarm versions. And, and I was, you know, when we, when we fired it up, I thought, you know what, if this, it's either going to be like it always was, or I don't want anything to do with it. Because uh, the last thing I wanted was to, you know, just let it go, just leave the band alone and don't kind of run it into the ground. But as it turned out, I was happily uh, surprised and, you know, everything was cool. Everybody was passionate. Everybody was into it and writing better. I think now we're, I have nine songs here in my computer. I've done three drum tracks to them and I'm going to be working with the band on uh, some live stuff now, like working on fleshing out some material. So we're well on our way to our album Shockwave. We're deep into that album. So the new Rods album will be completed probably in a couple months. Wow. So, are you releasing it on any kind of label or, or are you guys doing it on your own? Well, we're doing this on our own, but we do have a label interest. Okay. And uh, we've had a couple of things, but you know, right now we have, uh, we had interest from a really great label, but they want things now. Everybody, the labels really seem to have taken advantage of the COVID thing. Um, oh, it's COVID. So we really, our budgets are cut way back, but now they want things in perpetuity. And I don't know if you're aware, but we've just re-released our entire catalog with the exception of the SPV album that we did two years ago. On Brotherhood, of, Brotherhood of Metal. But we, Brotherhood of Metal, but we've re-released oh, yeah. our entire catalog, um, re, all remastered and incredible. Um, cher- or not Cherry Red. Cherry Red has also done some reissues and done a great job. But High Roller has done an incredible job on the reissues. But the label that was a, basically a major label and asked us to uh, you know offered us a decent amount of money but they wanted the album in perpetuity and i don't do anything in perpetuity it's just giving just doing the creation of something the hard work and then just handing it over to basically suits and saying okay here it is now it's as if you created this i I just can't i'd rather put nothing out or put it out on my own or our own and uh, leave it at that rather than give it to somebody in perpetuity. I'm just not a firm believer of it. I've, I fought to retain our, our rights and our publishing uh, from day one after the two Arista albums, everything after that we own a hundred percent. And so that's how I feel about it. And uh, so, you know, as much as I would love to be on that label, 
but so we'll see what happens. We're, we're just going to finish the album. We're vets. We've done this before. We all have home studios. We know how to make it happen in a positive way. And we have a couple of great mixed people and hopefully Chris Collier will be mixing the album again. Mm-hmm. So we'll see what happens. Very cool. I hope, I hope everything works out well. And uh, that's yeah, great to nice. hear that, you know, you own all your own stuff because, you know, that doesn't, uh, it's, a lot of bands aren't that lucky, you know. A lot of bands get screwed with that. It was it Rock Candy that issued your uh, material, Carl? It's High Roller did the majority of it, but High Ro- um, Cherry Red has has released a couple of uh, CDs they did a great job on. Okay. High Roller's done all vinyl, everything, you know, splatter discs, great booklets, photos. They're photos that they dug up that I have no freaking idea where they found them. We're, David and I were doing an unboxing video. And I'm like, what? Wow. Did you ever see this? No, I've never seen that. So wow, That's cool. Yeah, High Roller does a lot of really good stuff. Uh, actually just uh, released um, Jag Panzer's um, back catalog as well. They do a really good and job on that stuff. They they do. And it's. Uh, I have to say that it really was a pain in the ass. Mm. Um, because they're so meticulous right i had to dig like photos hours and hours of photos had to go back to the original masters and the dats and transfer them and uh, it was a lot of work because they were demanding they wanted mm. things but but in the end of the day it was great product yeah yeah that's that's what matters man uh yeah. by the way welcome james you're very gold today that is because I am enjoying the Winter Olympic spirit and not only uh, rooting for the United States, but also rooting for my and its family ancestral homeland of the kingdom of Sweden. So <laughs> I am wearing the Swedish hockey jersey, the best color, the best hockey jersey in the world right here. And uh, <laughs> sorry for coming in late, guys. I, I, uh, I'll, I'll, be, I'll admit I've been working too much and I passed out. So it's all right. <laughs> well, does it now? <laughs> does anybody well, else, anybody else? And hey, James. Does Sorry. anybody else has anybody else noticed that James? It was like the voice of God. It's a big ambient sound. It's like, <laughs> bye guys, I'm here. James Holy has the perfect voice for radio, but unfortunately, he's stuck on Ratsa Review. By the way, James, to say uh, to quote my favorite Swede, "Bork, bork, bork" to you, sir. Welcome aboard. Oh, th- thank you, our wonderful Swedish uh, uh, culinary uh, ambassador. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> wow, uh, that voice. That voice sounds great, James. You need a cape and some special lighting and fog. Well, you know, um, you know the, the 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 well, you know. Unfortunately, I uh, I I subscribe to the ideas of in the mode. Uh, no capes. No capes. <laughs> wow, that's a good shirt. No capes. Not all heroes wear capes. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> Too funny. Until we meet again. Sorry. <laughs> By the way, you have to excuse me. It's not lipstick. It's chapstick. chapstick. It, it is winter time. You know, mm-hmm. it is dry. And, you know, the, uh, you know, lip moisturization is very important this time of year. <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm going to move over that one. But OK, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I come uh, see. Uh, unfortunately, uh, my, my uh, part of the show here, I have to completely derail the conversation. So yeah. I'm glad to have done my part. OK, your minutes <laughs> up. up. Wayne, take the conversation back. Oh. <laughs> 15 minutes. Got it. Cool. Thanks. <laughs> now you're also a producer, which I mentioned before. Um, did you go to school or how did you learn to become a, a producer? Well, I mean, I probably give you a big wise ass answer on that, but, <laughs> but the reality is um, I'd always been into it. In fact, mm-hmm. when uh, I was 16, I had a girlfriend who was in college and I convinced her and her best friend to 
take out two tape recorders from the library and they were mono tape recorders. And I would play because I, I started playing guitar around the same time I started playing drums. Is that all and you so, convinced them to do? No, just kidding. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> Lou, behave yourself. Sorry. Yes, please. I would never, ever. There's, there's but anyway. Chapstick involved with that one. But... So, so I, I, actually, I actually had this cheap acoustic guitar and I would write. Like, and I'm surprised the Guinness people haven't knocked on my door and said, you know, here's your award for the world's worst songs, the worst song catalog, <laughs> because between piano and guitar, I've written some of the worst acoustic songs and piano songs. So anyway, I would write these horrible songs, like, and I would then I record it into the recorder and then I would bounce it to the next recorder and I would try to sing along or play a guitar part to it and then bounce it back. And I would do that a number of times until the hiss was so bad, you couldn't hear how bad my song was. And then I would go, well, that's done now. So that's perfect. And from that, I just advanced to always uh, really being interested in the recording aspect of it. How do you get it to sound this way? Where do you place the microphone? And I would just ask everybody and annoy everybody and watch and learn everything I possibly could. Mm. And it also, also had a, uh, a propensity to want to jump in on arrangements. I always, you know, I've always been, I mean, I'd love to say I was good at it, but I would say I have a lot of ideas for arranging. And so I've always had a hand in arranging. And uh, so, so for me, it was kind of a, you know, a no brainer. It was just a progression of, and of everything. And then when we went to the studio to record the first Rods album, not only did we not know what a producer was, we didn't have any money. You know, we were living on $5 a day, and our bass player, Steve, smoked. So out of that $5 a day, he had to buy cigarettes. So <laughs> it, was, it was tight. So, of course, we couldn't afford a producer. So when David would be doing vocals or guitar parts, you know, I would be going, hey, try this. And, you know, vice versa. Like, we both worked. And it was basically the two of us most of the time. So that's kind of how I started getting my studio chops together. And Chris Bubach, who was a good friend, and I've been a friend of the family, so I'm good friends with all of the family and uh, Chris was the engineer. And so he did the first Metallica album and tons of other material after, but you know, Chris would show me things and he was always sharing ideas. So that's how we got into it. Cool. That's something I always wanted to do too. I was actually going to go to a school for it. And then, then they wanted you to like actually know how to play music and like read notes and all this stuff. And I play mm -hmm. drums, but, and I play a little bit of guitar, but I, I don't know how to read you know music or anything so i was like well, it I makes forget it but that makes it a really tough learning curve you know yeah. depending on where you're going to go i mean you could do a full sale but anyway yeah. you know i'm sure you'll learn a lot on your own with doing this yeah you obviously yeah. no yeah i know a little bit now and then i also like you uh, i record my own music at home too so you know my friend hooked me up with the interface so now i know how to do all that stuff and we use mm -hmm. reaper so you know it's it, it come you know it's coming a little bit but you know it's mm -hmm. fun it's fun learning how to do that stuff so yeah, Wayne and I are our own worst critics when it comes to recording because we'll, you know, hear a flub and we'll be like, I'll do it again. You know, yeah. like we'll, we'll make sure whatever we send to be mastered is the cut that we're happy with. So yeah. that's the nice thing about recording at home. I was just talking to our bass player and uh, the title tracks uh, Shockwave. I did a drum track and I sent it off and I said, you know, I'm a big believer in when I send my stuff out now, I do waves. Mm. Uh, from zeroed waves. And I just tell everybody when I play for other people, I just tell them, here it is, zeroed waves. I've done some EQ. If you don't like it, I don't want anything beat detected. I don't want anything changed. If this doesn't work for you, send it back. I'll replay it. But I want it to have a human feel and 
I'd rather replay it as much of a, as a pain in the ass as that can be. Mm-hmm. I'd rather do that than have to listen to somebody like cut things up. And I, that's what happened in the beginning when we did the Vengeance album, the Rod's Comeback album. Mm. Uh, initially, it was just cut up so badly that I wound up having to re-record the entire album. Oh, wow. and, I, and I had hatred for many people. <laughs> so mm-hmm. no, it wasn't it was a it made it a very very unpleasant situation but now everything is smooth and you know we know how to kind of get it done yeah all right cool uh man you got anything Lance? yeah i was gonna ask um were the uh the first rod's albums they were released independently correct carl the first rod's album was on my label which was um called primal records and uh, i went through hell to set that up you know, the American Federation of Musicians and, you know, the whole nine yards and uh, for a thousand albums. It was like so stupid, but that's what it was. And so we produced the first album on our own right. and uh, and that's what got us a deal. And after that, Arista picked up the first two albums. And so next two albums, the, the Rods, self-titled, and then Wild Dogs were on Arista, um, both here in the UK and and. Uh, and we'd actually signed to Areola America, which then was absorbed absorbed by uh, Arista. And so we were one of the bands they picked up, Crocus, us. And, uh, of course, then we were on a label with uh, Aretha Franklin and uh, what's the other band now? I can't think of the name. Um, Ourselves had Whitney Houston. And, uh, yes. you know, one of their casualties These was the, the Irish sorry. band Mama's Boys. Because here there was a hard rock band from Ireland on a pop label and their sound got watered down so badly. It's like I, you know, when, when I heard that hard rock bands were on a label like ours, I was happy for them, but they just didn't have good strategies for, for, no, for they didn't. the bands of the past. They didn't. Um, Air Supply, right? That was the band air supply we have and, uh, so supply. We, we try to we try to forget about air supply <laughs> no 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 can't forget about air supply because i can never forget about air supply because we were looking getting tour support we were going to be going on the road with uh, judas priest and so it came down to aretha franklin got huge posters and things for record store in uh, promotion huge budget and air supply got those glowing rocks that they had on stage, which I don't know if you've seen any of that for their, their concerts. Cause I know you've guys, I can tell all of you have been to air supply concerts. Oh, of course. Um, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Those, those glowing rocks on stage, they cost the, uh, the rods a lot of tour support, but uh, you know, when I see them, I think to myself, wow, that's, that's fabulous stuff right there. Two glowing rocks for uh, that band, but you know, Mike bone, all, all kidding aside, Mike Bone was our A&R guy who went on to Electra, and uh, Mike Bone was a great, great uh, A&R guy. He just happened to be at a label where Clive Davidson, of course, there's this somewhat famous story or infamous story of we signed to Arista, we play CBGBs. Of course, I was thrilled to play CBGBs. Not that it was a pit, but mm. I was thrilled because it's legendary for me. Just like when we played the marquee, it was like so cool to be in the dressing room and see all the, my favorite bands from when I first started playing and scribbling on the wall, all their, their crap. And so we play CBGBs and Clive shows up with these white limos and a huge entourage. And 
there's a sp- follow spot 10 feet away from David and he's doing his guitar solo and he jumps on the table, like, you know, he runs around, jumps on the table and kicks a beer. It goes in the direction of Clive. And of course, Clive gets up and see, uh, he's gone. And so, uh, yeah, but you know, we just weren't on the right label. Clive was never going to, we weren't Barry Manilow or air supply, you know, right. so Clive was never going to be, you know, the rods biggest fan. Talk about missing the plot, showing up to CVs in a white limo. That is begging for trouble. <laughs> well, I, the reason I ask about the independent label, because that was such a, I know you guys weren't a punk band, but such a punk rock thing to do, because before that, you didn't really hear about indie labels. That you would hear mm-hmm. about Black Flag uh, had the uh, SST and, you know, Dead Kennedys, alternative technical, you know, te- tackle, tentacles, alternative technicals. Thank you, <laughs> thank you. So the and, first uh, minor thread had Discord. They had their own yeah. label, yeah. Yeah. So the first kind of metal label. Now this is I remember as advertisements. I didn't know what the underground was. I was living by then from the Bronx to suburbia in, in Florida. Was Megaforce. I remember the logo. I don't, but I didn't remember seeing any of the albums in stores as a kid until Ravens Offer One. So, like the Rods, I would see your ads, but I would never see them in the stores. There was no internet back then. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, it was such a great <clears throat> punk rock thing to do. Were you guys influenced by the, maybe not the music, but influenced by releasing Independent or, you know, how I, did you guys, you know? My goal, my goal had always been to be on a major label. Okay, so and that was my goal, but I also knew that I was going to do it myself. I'm going to, you know, we had done. I in a band was in a band called Colacus from Boston. In fact, Colacus has. I just finished all my drum tracks for that album, so they're pushing me to do a vocal. Oh my god! I'm just like, come on, guys, really, a vocal? Like, no, you can do it. We'll make it sound great. Do your vocal. I'm like, oh, please. Um, so I haven't gotten to it yet. I can't bear to hear my voice a little alone with somebody else hear it, but, um, they're assuring me it's going to be great. But then again, you know, that's, that goes along with the checks in the mail. Just let me put the tip in, um, you know, a lot of those great sayings that you always go, well, maybe not. So, um, but anyway, that, that band has, has an album and we had a new album 42 years later, second album, but I had primal and we released singles on primal and we did an album on primal on my label and uh, so you know it was just a, a way of i just wanted to get it out i wanted to i didn't want to get bottlenecked and that's how it was back then I mean, you, you had a major label in 80 79 or 80 or you did it yourself you know and you were bottlenecked you know you had to have an a and r person believe in you and back then a lot of bands if there was a manager who had a strong band that was successful they could just basically say okay sign this band and they would get another band that was that they were managing. They would get them a deal. It wasn't always easy, and there was a little of that nepotism going on. So that was it. So there was no real inspiration from you know the punk scene or any of that. It was just a case of I'm you know hell or high water. I'm going to wind up with a major label deal, or I'm going to get my music out one way or the other. And that's all it was. All right. Well, thank you, Lou. So I think it's safe to say with the albums behind you, uh, the albums that you produced, I mean, I recognize Anthrax and I see TT Quick and I see that, you know, as uh, many mentioned before, Megaforce Records, I mean, it's pretty much safe to say that 
well, you were Megaforce's in-house producer, for lack of a better term. Would it be safe to say that? I mean, I wouldn't say that. I'm always a little hesitant to claim anything like that. But, you know, Johnny, uh, who just recently passed away. Rest in peace, Johnny Z, yes. Yeah, no, just so sad. And Johnny and I hit it off the first time I called him to talk about it. And he hired me for Anthrax. And uh, slight unseen, just because we we hit it off on the phone and had a couple of good conversations. And uh, so that's that's how it happened. And then he just kept giving me albums so i think i did seven albums for megaforce so uh, you know that was that was how that went but you know johnny and i were really very good friends we're like a brother to me in fact you know in the last four years or so we were talking two or three times a week and uh, it was it leaves a big hole in my life right now but uh, god bless him guy was a legend and you know what he did he fought for and made change the face of metal brought metal to mainstream yeah. yeah, he he was he was our Clive Davis, except more respectable and with a better ear for talent. I would say <clears throat> Johnny and Marsha would never show up in a white limo to CBGBs. That I <laughs> I can guarantee. The the funniest story I heard was apparently he signed Ace Frehley over a, a tuna fish sandwich mm-hmm. and a handshake. Apparently that's how Ace got his uh, record deal for Frehley's comment. Uh, mm-hmm. co- comment comment. <laughs> I got you doing it now. <laughs> thanks manny <laughs> but uh you know uh the one that stands out to me is tt quick and of course uh, everyone knows that um you know their singer is now in accept mm-hmm. and i mean talk about a um talk about a, me- a comeback for uh metal music i mean except seems to me at least more popular now than they've ever been before especially uh, with uh blood of the nations there's no um, uh, no sorry yeah, go ahead no sorry you're absolutely right i agree mm. i agree they're bigger than you know he brought them back the band's huge now compared to where they were prior to mark tornillo joining yeah you're right because the last few except albums prior to that just weren't weren't that well received with udo you're right, right. Yeah. and uh and the live show i mean they're so tight you know, I have a, my first solo album, Headbanger, which was really an album that I did because I wanted to showcase my writing. Mm. But so I asked Mark if he would sing a couple songs. He sang three songs and he drove here from New Jersey, two hours or more, um, twice to sing on my album. Wow. And uh, wouldn't take a dime, wouldn't take gas money. Just, you know, what a great guy. And he was in Accept at the time, you know. And, uh, you know, but I know how hard they work and they deserve everything they get. They, the, it's, it's not an accident that the band is super tight and writing great material. They work hard at it. Oh, it's great that you still have a friendship with him because, you know, uh, I, I'm not saying that he would be the kind of person where once he gets that taste of success, it's like he forgets everybody that helped him when he was here get this way. But, uh, you know, I mean, there are horror stories about that in, well, in every scene. But it's good to know that, you know, he kept that humility. No, and... he's he's totally, totally cool. And, uh, you know, he's a guy who was like when you say like bringing the band back, the band back. But he was a singer who should have had huge success decades ago. And so I'm glad that he's coming into his own now. He's it's long overdue and well deserved. Carl, would cool. you like to say I'm sorry, go ahead. No, as I say, anyone else, go ahead. 
Yeah, I was going to say, Carl, when you write a song, how do you determine whether it's going to be something for your solo project, 450, or the rides? I mean, how do you personally determine that? Do you write for the band, or do you, you write for a certain project, or just writing wherever the song lands and lands, you know, whatever, you know, how do you, how do you determine well, that as a songwriter? When I pick up, like, for example, there's so many different ways. When I pick up a guitar to write a song, um, we have a saying in the rods that if it's more than three chords, it takes more than five minutes to learn. It's not a good rod song. <laughs> so that's, that's rule number one. And, and of course we say to Jess, but we're totally sincere about it because the rods are like a, like when I, I always say that when I count the set off, like we don't have breaks in our sets. Uh, now we may going forward, but in the past, our sets are, all the songs are tied together. And uh, so it's like the train leaves the station and it just goes to the end of the set. And so there's no time to, because of the way we are, which just it's a ball of energy, however good or bad that may be. Uh, there's no time to, to have little nuances and little cute things and musical things. And that's why we wound up doing the Hollywood album because David and I write different types of material. And so it wasn't, we didn't want to put it out as a Rod's album at that time because we felt it would be kind of, um, you know, trying to scam our fans, scam, you know, scam Rod's fans. Mm -hmm. So with the Rod's, there's a certain thing. And David wrote a song called Getting Higher. And um, in the early days, because when we started the band, we were doing clubs and, uh, and we were rehearsing and writing at building equipment and doing t-shirts. We would get together at 10 a.m. at El Falso's. We would rehearse till noon or so. We'd go back to Ithaca to my place, my garage, and we would build equipment. Some of those cabinets David still has. I still have a teal cabinet that I have, a 12-inch teal cabinet. And I also had my drum monitors that I built. And uh, we'd do T-shirts. And then around 6 o'clock at night, we would go back to Al Falso's, and we would rehearse until 9 or 10. So we were writing material all during this time. But David wrote a song, Getting Higher. And that was, for me, the template for what Rod's songs should be. And so that's kind of how it went for me. At that point, then I started saying, okay, this is kind of how I need to write my songs to bring to the rods. And when I write other songs, though, um, I just pick up the guitar and uh, I try to stay away from the piano because I just, I don't want the dog to howl anymore. <laughs> um, I try to stay away from the piano, but, but I write, you know, when I pick up the guitar to write, I don't have any limitations anymore. I'm not thinking we need, an opening to the set. I don't think we need to um, have a slower song or we need to have a grinder or we need to have a really up tempo or we need it to be three minutes. Or we need it to be six minutes or, you know, with a lot of interludes and different parts, I just write whatever comes and good, bad or indifferent and then assess it when it's over. So there's a, there's a lot of freedom now to songwriting. And whereas in the old days, I would try to steer it or not necessarily force it, but steer a song a certain direction so what would you say is the most rewarding element for you as a musician would it be the writing the uh recording or the performing hmm. i think i mean for me it's like uh shulik avagal said to me one time because i was really into the producing thing but i also love playing drums and and he said to me for you playing drums is breathing and, uh, and, and I, I thought, you know, come on, man, that's whatever. I don't know what that means. 
But I've learned over the years that when I'm playing drums, I'm in my element. Obviously, I've been doing it since I was 13, and I'm I'm ancient now. I just turned 69 last right. a week ago Thursday, and I was so. Brave Words picked up my drum solo. I can't believe my friend who's a vice president at Borg Warner called me. He goes, hey, I saw your solo. But um, for me, I, I realized that sitting behind the kit and playing when things are going well, that is me and my element. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I want to be, you know, gushy and whatever, but say, oh, well, that's what I was meant to do. Mm-hmm. But it certainly seems that I've, since the time I was five, it's all I've wanted to do. And, uh, Obviously, I still have the passion for it at, at 69. And so I would say that's fulfilling. But the other is creating music that lasts, that will be here when I'm gone. Mm. And, uh, you know, that my daughter and, you know, hopefully her children, whatever. Not that I expect them to put on any Rod's music, but nonetheless, the music would be there if they should choose to. But what the hell was he up to? <laughs> well, you don't look 69. You look younger. So whatever you're doing, keep it up. Good stuff. Well, well, thanks. It's the moisturizing and the chaps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Where is> James. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll get to James in a minute. I know are, you got anything to say, James? Actually, no, I had a question about producing because something that um, ever since getting into podcasting, I really enjoyed doing. Um, unfortunately, I never got a chance to do anything with analog. But uh, since you were in the tra- kind of the transition period, what are the... Uh, what are the benefits and what are the negatives outside of just like, you know, the normal sound and everything? What do you think the, the benefits and negatives are of using digital recordings then? Cause I know it sounds like you said, like you don't like doing all the chopping. Like a lot of people like to do, you like to do it all in one take. Is that more from your analog time or is that more from? No, no, not at all. I'm, look, I'm all, I'm all about technology. I actually had, when I came here to Pennsylvania, I, I bought a dress factory, an old dress factory, and I made a 24-track studio. I, had a, I bought a um, Trident Series uh, 80, and I came from England, and uh, supposedly supposedly Fleetwood Mac had done some things on it and some other bands, Queen or something. I, none of that rubbed off in my studio, but, but nonetheless, <laughs> that was the pedigree. Uh, and so I had that, you know, I had the two-inch machine and all analog and tons of equipment and a really nice sounding room even though it it was a funky room but it was a great sounding room and uh you know i loved analog but the minute digital came on the scene i uh, i embraced it totally because i'd always been into gadgets and always gear guy and uh, wanted to learn everything about every piece of gear which is just for anybody listening to this who's young and starting out you can't learn everything there is to know about every piece of gear and be sane and function in a, in a daily routine in a studio or in your home studio or in life. You just have to learn what you can get out of that piece of gear and keep, move on and grab other pieces and, until you put together what you need. But so I had that and I had a lot of experience with um, analog and, you know, I learned a lot about engineering because by the time I sold, I had an offer on my building after about six years. And uh, I didn't think I'd ever sell the building. I figured I'll have this forever. But the funeral director lived next door, which was one of the great things about having a funeral home next door is nobody complained. Um, so we, uh, you know, when he asked us, you know, to buy the building. So I decided I would sell because otherwise I was going to make a major investment into uh, digital. And at that time, I was like, you know, my daughter's six. I want to be around for her. 
And uh, so, and plus all my clients were from out of state. I didn't do local. I wasn't open for local business, but by the time I closed my studio, I wouldn't even mic something until it sounded good in the room. And then I learned over the time to use cut EQ. I didn't they stopped boosting everything. It used to be boost everything. I went to a studio and we did uh, you better run. And uh, I think it was you better run and maybe crank it up. And they had a, it's a Clark's technic or, you know, a, a brand name and it was a cut only EQ. And I thought, I said, wow, cut only EQ kind of sucky gear is this, you know, it only cuts EQ. Like where, where yeah, man, I want to boost the low end. I want to crank that. And so by the time, Years and years going by of, of engineering and, and producing, I finally learned that you cut frequencies. You don't just boost frequencies. And uh, so, but at that point, like now, once once I started getting into the digital thing, it's not that I, it's not that I don't want to. Uh, I don't, I'm afraid to cut things up. I'm not opposed to punching in, and I do that sometimes. What I find is by the time I've learned the song, I can just play through it. Right. And I just got a song back from an engineer and I you know, said, look, please don't cut it up. He goes, man, there was no place to move. You were spot on with the click track. But that was something that took me a long time to learn how to play with the click track. Mm-hmm. I learned how to be in front of it, behind it and on it and keep it all in the same and make it groove and flow and breathe. So uh, but so, no, it's not that I'm, a, I'm, I'm all about doing scenes. I'm about, you know, doing a chorus and doing three choruses and whatever. I just don't because when I'm playing drums, it's just easier for me. Now, when it comes to guitar playing, you know, I'm more than happy to hack some little verse and then hack a chorus and then, you know, hack a bridge and then copy and paste wherever I have to because they're just my demos. So right. when did you start learning to use the click track? Um, I started when, after the, the Rods did two albums and okay, we hadn't, we hadn't done, uh, I think we brought in Ashley Howe, came from England to Rochester, New York. And Ashley Howe was going to get us, help us get a deal. And he brought a song called Stay on Top, which Uriah Heep did a version of. And he brought that song and he put a click track on and a song that David and I wrote called cold sweat and blood. And there are a couple of other songs, love is pain and maybe one other track he did. So he did stay on top first, or maybe, no, maybe it was cold sweat and blood. Cold sweat and blood is boom, ba, boom, ba, boom, ba, boom, ba. Could teach my grandmother to play that in five minutes. Right. <laughs> What's the click track on? Bah, tick, tick, bah. and i'm trying to match it up like oh my god tick 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 is that hitting the click tick 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 oh there was a fucking click tick 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 bah, tick shit and then i was at music america so i'm in this huge room upstairs and then there's a camera right here yeah right in my face and i only hear the voices right so tick tick tock oh please god let me be on the click like boom bah, tick pop tick pop tick pop and the machine would stop and when you hit analog as you know boom you hear this little slur down slow down so now i'm playing it and the camera's in my face and i hear "Mm." (laughs) right carl we're gonna roll it back mate and uh, let's give it a go from the top all right uh yeah yeah sure tick tick pop tick tick pop okay the camera's in my face 
all right, um, let's let's try it again, mate. No input, right? No input. Like, hey, just relax. Play like let the click be a pulse. Right, right. I try to teach young drummers, like, hey, it's music. It's not just metronomic, it's music. So anyway, we do it again. We go on like four or five times. Here's the it's getting closer and closer to me. Boom. <laughs> and the camera's there and the silence is long. And then I hear right then we'll drop in <laughs> so then he plays it and i like, play along with it just humiliating humiliating yeah. and i play and he just stop hmm. okay roll it back a little okay right we're going to drop in and go on he's punching me in on the drum tracks which is like right. you know back then it was a no-no you know you're gonna have clicks right. and pops it's messed up yeah so I get through the track and that's how the whole session went for four songs. Wow. Um, humiliating, just humiliated. Now here, I had just come back from England playing with, on the Iron Maiden tour, like killing it. Mm. And suddenly I can't play tick, tick, pop, tick, 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 pop, tick, 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 pop in time. And I was like, okay, dude, you, you suck. <laughs> and so at that point I went out and I immediately bought a drum machine, a little boss drum machine. Mm. And, uh, I can play to a click now. Man, wow. They can put that camera in front of me anytime they want. <laughs> <laughs> that was like the uh, story I heard um, with uh, Nirvana. Dave it's Grohl the- hated having the click track. And, mm-hmm. and, and they, they immediately, when they were doing uh, the uh, Nevermind, they, he, they, put, they made him listen to a click track because he was dragging the beat. Mm-hmm. And he didn't even realize it. He was dragging until he got the click track going. And, you know, it's funny, sometimes people don't realize what they're doing and they might be rushing it or, or, or dragging it by, and they don't realize it because they're just doing it with how they feel like it. And- exactly. Exactly. Right. Voice of God. It's, um, <laughs> it's, you really are feeling it a certain way you're playing it. And so you're obviously not being objective and listening uh, until playback, which of course is too late to do any correcting. And uh, so it's really true. And now after learning how to do the click track play work with the click track it, i don't want to play without the click track it's just total freedom for me so then i've learned and i use 16th notes like if i were doing a slow song sometimes somebody will send me something and they'll send me a click on a slow song click 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 i'm like what, what am i going to do with that i need right. eighth notes at least yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, you know or the same with with the you know a fast song so but anyway you know you learn and and it makes a big difference it's a just a great guide and of course once you find the tempo and i don't use a click track to find the tempo i find the tempo and then find the click track that matches that tempo but um you know then once you know you're in the groove by playing it without a click track strapping the click track on is going to do no harm at that point right i I agree with that statement because you know i i've the only times i've ever recorded were with a click track and I think the biggest misconception that uh, some musicians have is that a click track takes the soul out of the performance out. Right. And I highly disagree with that. Um, I think if, if you want to consider yourself a musician, whether professional or amateur and a good one, a good sense of time is very important. Uh, James and I have this ongoing banter back and forth about Ginger Baker. Uh, He loves Ginger Baker. I'm, indifferent to him as a human being but as a musician 
uh, I will give him his credit. He was one of the best jazz drummers in rock. But I agree with him on one statement that if a musician doesn't have time, then they're not worthy of the name musician. And, you know, I think that even with the click track, the the soul of the musician could still be captured within the context of a recording. You know, um, I totally I, I totally agree. And um, I also agree with with the fact that uh, Ginger Baker, he was a huge influence. And, you know, I, I idolized him when I was 15 and it was so great. You know, Ginger Baker and Kareem are like, oh, my God, they're incredible. And uh, but Ginger Baker, despicable human being. I had I felt like I had to shower after I read his book. That's how bad it was. It was just what a pig, what a piece of shit human being he was. was and uh, yeah, just just despicable guy. I mean, he really um, a terrible person. Let's not trigger oh, yeah, James. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> oh, are you, you, guys, you guys are not telling me anything I don't know. I'm just thinking okay. pure <laughs> musicianship. I'm talking. No, it's about a musician. Here. The guy was oh, brilliant. Phenomenal. Wait, no, but listen, but the voice of God is absolutely right. Ginger Baker, and is a phenomenal drummer. And it's something that, for a while, as I got into Cobham and different jazz drummers who played powerfully and and had up tempos, um. I kind of diss Ginger Baker's sloppy, you know, I thought, oh, you know, the guy's sloppy, but now in recent years, I've come back to realize that he was the groove master. Like he was whatever fluctuations he had, he was musical and he was just a phenomenal drummer. And, uh, you know, he had his own thing and he did it incredibly well. So you know, I agree with the voice of God. He's a great drummer. And, and, that's and, the new and nickname, was, James. We're yes, creating new t-shirts I'm, for you. I'm okay with this. Um, you know, when I was <laughs> when I was practicing as a uh, high school musician, and everything. Our our drum director, who was you know University of Tennessee trained, uh, mm. he would bracket. He he called it Doctor B. And if we were off, didn't matter if we were doing classical, marching, you know, parade, didn't matter. Doctor Beat's coming out if you're if you're messing up too much. Excuse me, if you're fucking up too much, um, we're gonna get Doctor Beat coming out. And it wasn't to humiliate us. It was to, some of us are messing up here. We need to fix this right now before we even get into how we're going to make this better. So now did Dr. Beat, was Dr. Beat a huge wall of uh, speakers with a spotlight on it? No, it was just, it was just a speaker and it was very loud and a flashing light. Oh, oh, great. That's great. The flashing light. You've got to have that. It was great for, especially in the uh, middle of a pasture in Jefferson County, Tennessee. It was great. I agree with that though. The, like I, when I work with drummers, they'll say, Oh, well we, this or we, that. And, and uh, I, I'm like, you know what? You can't bend time. If the song is a linear song, you can't bend the time. You can't just decide to arbitrarily slow down in this measure and speed up in that measure. Mm-hmm. Not how it works. You know, there's a pulse to it, maintain that pulse and that, but think of it as a heartbeat of the song. You've got to make it happen. And so I agree. you got to, I don't know about Dr. B, but I like that next project I do. Dr. B's going to, I'm going to get that a big light that's in sync with the uh, click track and just like, until they tell the truth. <laughs> Are there any musicians, particularly drummers, uh, possibly in the last, uh, let's say, 10 to 20 years that have impressed you? Um, I know I know a lot of people who I, are drummers uh, give going, praise to Joey Jordison of Slipknot. I don't know how you uh, feel about yeah, people. Uh, like him. Amazing. Now I'm going to give you the, uh, I have a friend who has a very healthy ego. So I'm going to give you the answer that I believe he would give. And that would be no. <laughs> <laughs> but Fair enough. Me, but for me, 
Yeah, everybody. I mean, you know, Joey had this incredible, like, style and approach to things. It was, you know, amazing. But there's so many drummers. Like, right now, I mean, I was into, like, I didn't love Portnoy mm. at first in Dream Theater. For some reason, not that I didn't recognize him as a phenomenal drummer. Not not saying that. Like, I was always like, wow, this guy's amazing. But the stuff left me cold. For whatever reason, I was just not tuned in. My engineer at my studio um, he would always play dream theater. I'm like, yeah, my friend booked dream theater. Um, you know, Susan Burke, John Dittmar, they, they were their agency for a long time. So I could have gone to those concerts, you know, no charge. I just never did. Mm. And, uh, you know, I'm obviously missed the boat on it because sometimes I'm arrogant and pigheaded, but I just, it left me cold. But then when I heard winery dogs and of course I'm, you know, I love Billy, Billy and I have friends and, and uh, so, of course, I listened to that and I was just and I went to see them and uh, Portnoy was using a single bass kit and it just it blew me away at how musical he was, how we approached it from going from a huge drum set, which I always love playing to playing a very stripped down drum kit and still making it sound like a huge multi drum kit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I became a huge fan at that point uh, because of that. But, you know. Portnoy, Zuckerman. Um, uh, Zuckerman is probably lately my favorite drummer because of the fact that he has incredible technique, but he also has this musicality and he's put it all together and he's got incredibly fast chops. He's as fast as any drummer out there. But so many drummers today, from young kids to, you know, people in their 40s guys in their 40s women in their 40s they're incredible drummers like how do you determine which drummer is better quote-unquote than the next it's just style or approach or how you you whether you identify with what they do like how they approach their drum kit so you know i would say in the last 20 years of course there's so many drummers who've impressed me and i i try to steal from everybody and i'm not uh, embarrassed to say that and i'm not i'm also aside from not being embarrassed about stealing from everybody I'm not afraid to do a watered down crappy version of one of their licks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm excited because in March I'm going to go see tools. So I get to actually get to see Danny live. And I, mm. I am super excited to see that just because the guitarist. Uh, no, no, no. The drummer for tool. No, the guitarist in the four fifties. Oh, sorry, sorry. I, I, inter- I interrupted you and interrupting God. Might not dare, be a good idea. I will smite you. <laughs> Blasphemy. But, but the uh, guitarist in the 450s, um, he's a huge Danny Carey fan, huge. In fact, he asked me to kind of channel him, which, of course, there's no way I could come close to it, but in one of the 450 songs. So Very cool. that'll be a cool concert. Yeah. And a good segue. Yeah, well, I was going to have two, a couple of things. You guys just keep talking and talking and talking. You forgot. This is my show. Well, you know, you know, Hi, Wayne. Wayne, it's, you know if, if you keep saying you are the leader, you know, a lot of people say then then you're saying you're then you're not having the leadership skills. You're supposed to take command. Sir. Yeah, take the lead and don't let your oh, fear so get good. over you. <laughs> All right. Good now I. Now I'm sorry. I feel like I've been rambling on it. I apologize. Oh, no, you're the guest. You're oh, supposed no, to be, sir. No, no sir. This is, this is part of the show. It's you, we so, like Carl. It's yeah, way we don't. Yeah. yeah see how we, I like we can talk I... to each other anytime. You're the guest. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But, uh, sorry, anyway. Wayne. Take your show back. <laughs> uh, Friday, I'm going to see another Carl, Carl Palmer. 
Emerson, Lincoln Palmer, who's we, still playing great. Yeah, he unbelievable. Is. Yeah, that's my uh, father-in-law's favorite band. So he's playing close near, uh, nearby here. So uh, what's he doing? Fans. He's doing, he doing the fortieth anniversary of ELP. Well, because the other two guys are gone, that's gonna be. Guys, yeah, he's got these two young kids, uh, and the guitarist and plays guitar. Yeah, and the guitarist. So I talked to Jokomo, yeah. and I asked Jokomo, um, you know, they're playing at Machuk. Should I go? And I couldn't go because I had been exposed to COVID. I didn't. I've had COVID, but I I was exposed to it, and I couldn't go. Mm. So, um, I but I watched the videos, and he told me he goes watch the guitarist, and so I started watching some videos that young guitarists are talking about he's unbelievable at mm-hmm. duplicating elp parts like keith emerson's yeah. parts on guitar it's phenomenal wow yeah, yeah they're pretty good so that, that'll be it'll be fun to see that the only one disappointment i have is nobody singing you know i like to hear you know vocals oh is it all cool. instrumental it's all instrumental all and i think carl sings like maybe one song and he, he says it's kind of funny how he does it but it's, we'll see it's how kind it of goes. hard to replace greg lake whether you like those guys or not you know he, he had a great voice yeah. what a voice yeah but the yeah. big voice yeah and my other thing was uh seeing behind you your albums that you have produced uh two or actually kind of three of my favorites uh anthrax fistful of metal uh, armed and dangerous and spreading the disease what was it like working on that first anthrax album because uh i just had neil turban on another show that i do because he was working with another mu- musician that comes on my show um what was it because neil neil was a little crazy so was he kind of like that back then too with the conspiracy theories and all that neil is a neil is a ball of energy yeah. but neil is i love neil and neil is he was a very cool guy he, we had a he's really a cool, cool guy you, you know you got to understand neil is a unique artiste but um but you know he's his own guy and he doesn't give a damn what anybody thinks but he's a phenomenal singer and he's still a phenomenal singer but back then he was really on 10 and uh but it was great to work with him because uh, when those guys came in they came in and they were just like they just reminded me of myself i was so driven to get an album deal and, and so driven to do music and and uh, they were that's how I, I recognized that in them and so all it, my goal was to harness that and to get that energy to get them to play tight and really what happened was very quickly um it was very clear that scott was the tight guitarist and so scott was the guy who was doing the rhythms because danny danny wasn't quite as not that danny wasn't tight but he was not that precise that scott was and the more scott and i worked together the tighter he got and then with Danny, you know, we would actually it could be the point where I would be, he would be on one side of the speakers and I would be on the other. And it got to the point where we do a solo and just go, okay, do it again. Just look at my face and we didn't have to communicate. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, you know, it was bringing them together. And Dan Lilker, what a great guy, a talented guy. And, uh, you know, I had asked him to play with the pick, which we played in Chicago a few years ago, four years ago, maybe. And Dan's a really tall guy. Now, he walks, he sees me and he, and I'm sitting down like on a low bench. I'm way down. And Dan walks up to me and goes, I want to talk to you. <laughs> and I was like, Oh man, I'm going to hear it now. You know, you were such a jackass back then, man. <laughs> but he sat down and he's such a soft-spoken guy. And he's such a nice guy. And he goes, I have to thank you. You know, changed, changed a lot of things and for me by, uh, you know, telling me I had to play with a pick, learn how to play with the pick. Mm. And I was like, <laughs> uh, man, he's gonna kick my ass yeah. and since but, then he's been playing in nothing but 
grindcore and black metal bands. So mm -hmm. whatever advice you gave him worked for him, definitely. But he's, uh, yeah, it was great. So it was really, it was cool working with those guys. You know, of course, Charlie, from day one, I told Charlie, you know, you're going to be featured in Modern Drummer in no time because he was great. And uh, I wish he was. I mean, he played flawlessly. His drums were tuned well. He was a flawless drummer. He was a one and two take guy. Like he was, everything was perfect Man. with Charlie. He came in prepared and he executed. And I just heard his producer say on this last album, second to last album, that Charlie was so consistent. And that's exactly what I had. When he played Gung Ho, we hadn't heard that BPMs, you know, the bass drums really. You weren't no, you weren't hearing people playing that speed, right. and that especially that precisely. Yeah. And he knocked that out in one take. We were all just like, "Wow, wow, that was incredible to witness that." Yeah, he's a huge, so anything huge influence, influence on them. Yeah, but we're, so working with those guys, they were young, they were punky. You know, it was a, it was a lot of fun, you know. But uh, you know, can I say? There's still some people that say that those Anthrax albums you produced were the best material that they ever released. So you should take pride in that, definitely. Well, thank you. I, I think we uh, we worked well together. We did pre-production on those projects. And uh, but what was funny is because the band was, they were young. And so it was like everybody's ideas. Like I remember Danny was like, we're listening back and they're going, that was your idea, Carl. And, you know, <laughs> it was like, I don't care whose idea it was, you know, as long as the song is good. But, but um uh, you know, they were super talented. I mean, I, I would love to take credit for a lot of it. And I think I had a great influence on bringing their energy and, and helping with some arrangements and definitely executing. But uh, Anthrax, if you look at Anthrax, Overkill, Raven, you know, one of Ra this last album is one of Raven's best since the beginning mm. um, for me. And if you look at Anthrax and Overkill as examples of two bands who basically have aged zero. You know, they really are playing at the same quality they were playing at 35 years ago. Yeah. Wow. And there's, is there an uh, album that you had produced that's, that was your favorite that you worked on? You know, I want to I give you that uh, songwriter thing. They're all like my children. And, oh, you know, I can't. Don't cut that. We I all can't. have our favorites. Cue <laughs> the violence. We all have our favorites. <laughs> I can't choose one over the other. There's got to be one where the, the band. Yeah, 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 you can. There's there's one successful that. kid there. There's one successful kid. Come on. All right. All right, Voice of God. I'll, you know, my probably <laughs> the album, the, probably Spreading the Disease, I would yeah, say. Okay. It came together um, the way I was hoping it would come together, and it stood the test of time. And you have to remember, when, when I played that first album, and I was telling my friends, this band is phenomenal that I'm working with and I play them some stuff and they're like, Oh my God, that's horrible shit. How can you stand that? <laughs> yeah. They're like, but you have to remember that the old, it was the changing of the guard. Right. And they didn't, they a, didn't want to see the future and they didn't, they didn't even understand it. Some of them, mm. but my one friend, he was like, this is horrible. It's insect music. I don't know what insect music is, but whatever that is, um, it bugs them. Yeah, it bugs me. Wait, wait, wait. Try the fish. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Okay, so <laughs> I'll be here all week. Uh, Sorry. So, <laughs> so I he said, How big do you think they'll be? I go, gold gold and platinum act. And he's like, No way, no way. And so we bet on it. And of course he lost. But uh, people didn't understand, you know, musicians didn't understand it. I think they were afraid of it as well. 
mm. uh, in the early days, you know, because it was nobody had heard anything like it. And when you start upping the BPMs and it wasn't as musical, uh, it was more intense in your face. It was like some of it had punk elements. And so mm. I think a lot of the traditional classic metal or, you know, hard rock musicians, if you will, they just weren't down with it. They were like, oh, wait, this is rocking the boat here. Yeah. No, did a great job. It's one of my top favorite albums of all time. So good choice. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. Now I had to, I had to give it, you know, God, I had to give it up for God. <laughs> Thank or the voice You're of welcome, God. my child. Not, there we go. Not for, not for God, but for the voice of God. There we go. Please, Carl, we don't want his ego more boosted than it already is. <laughs> I mean, take a, just, just take a look at the voice of God. He's sitting, it's the cameras. He's in a big room and it's, He's looking down. The camera's looking down at him. It's like majestic. Yeah, it is. It is. Right. It is. There you go. You know, See that? Yeah. That shiny gold shirt with those uh, crowns on it. New rule. From now on, guests don't get to compliment James. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, love right. you, James. Hey, you know, it's okay. it, 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 it happens, all right? Because, you know, I'm here. It's my presence, all right? I'm going to get a compliment. That's at least fine. from someone, at, you know. Uh, anyway, wow, this this is out of control now. Voice of God is, <laughs> voice of God is getting too big for that room. Yeah, it's all went to his. <laughs> oh, oh, you I have no idea, sir. Oh God! Uh, all right, so this now awesome. now you have another a new band that's out called the Four Fifties. Um, explain where does that name come from? That is uh, a name that we never explained. It was a name we needed a name. We started, you know, tossing around all kinds of names like the lilies and the, uh, you know, the rocks and the pens and whatever we had no, you know, we're just trying to think of a name yeah. and uh, our singer came up with the name, the four fifties. And we're like, you know what? Good enough. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. No, I, again, I wish I had that really great cryptic and <laughs> mystical kind no, but of cool though, because you think it has a story, story, but it doesn't <laughs> has, has no story whatsoever. That's cool. It's a cool name though. So how did the band get together then? Because I know uh, two of them are brothers, right? The guitar mm-hmm. player and uh, the bass player, right? The brothers? Correct. So I had produced Young Turk and managed Young Turk years ago. Got them a deal with uh, Geffen and then took them to Virgin. We did an album for both labels and the album for Geffen didn't happen because they, David Geffen sold the company. And so I concocted this story, which Geffen corroborated in Billboard magazine. And got it. I just took them off the label and went to Virgin. So I had worked with Rhett and managed Rhett from the time he conned me when I was in Tampa. Mm-hmm. Wayne, when you're your area there with them. Uh, That's Manny's area. I'm in New York. Oh, Manny. Sorry, Manny. Yeah, and, uh, all good. So when I it was in Tampa, Rhett would call me, the singer, and he would say, come on, man, come down and hear my band. Like, look, I'm, I want to go home. I've been here three months. I'm going home. Fly to Miami and meet me. I'll meet you at the airport. And I remember back then, before the terrorism, you could just walk into the airport. You'd walk somebody to the gate and basically yeah. walk to the door with them to the plane. Yeah. And so he's like, come on, man, just meet me and, and you know, fly down here. I'm like, oh, look, kid, I'm not interested. So he hammered me and hammered me. So finally I said, okay, I'm going to fly down to, to Tampa. Or fly to Miami, sorry. I was in Tampa. I'll fly to Miami, and then I'll fly home from Miami. So we met, and I liked him. He, he was a hustler, you know. He's a smart kid, and I loved his voice. And so uh, that's how I signed him to my production company. And, uh, you know, so that's how I knew Rhett. And uh, 
and then wound up with the rest of the young tour. But that's how the singer wound up in this band. And of course, when uh, Jim and Bob, they had a band called St. James and we released a lot of material four years ago now, three a material was unreleased that we had done albums and I could just never get them signed. Their singer was like a, like a bad version of David Lee Roth. Uh, you know, he just, he just, he sang all the diphthongs and uh, you know, the same, I don't know. It was, he's a nice guy. He's a great looking guy, nice guy. And he has a decent voice, but it just didn't sing with any feel. Couldn't get a performance out of him that had any feel. And uh, so nothing happened. And I wound up being the de facto drummer in that band. It was like the spinal tap thing. Every time they bring a drummer in, something would happen. They brought one drummer in. He got dengue fever, had to send him home. I wound up playing drums on that whole thing in six hours, did the whole album. Wow. And uh, and then I was so sick, they'd still talk about it. How I was lying under the console listening to playback because I had the flu so bad, yeah. um, so badly. But And then, then another drummer came in, and he had a little portable TV, and he was on his cell phone talking to his mom, placing bets during the games while we were while while we were recording so they said thanks good luck with the bets get out and uh, so then i wanted to playing on that project and then there was another one where and it's on youtube angry band girlfriend i think i have it on as and uh, the guy came up we took photos that day and we started to record that night and his girlfriend called and left message after message you know you hate those guys those guys suck she's going on and on call after call after call he was gone by the time uh, the session started. And so I wound up playing drums on that as well. So, and in, in that situation, those guys would overlap with young Turk at my studio and they all became friends and they, you know, everybody would go to different gigs together and they just stayed friends all these years. So Bob and Jim had an idea to put a band together and they invited me and they invited Rhett and uh, that's how this the 450 started it was just out of friendship and wanting to play together very cool and yeah i never heard of red's uh other stuff because i know he does uh another his solo stuff right red has he has a band the yeah. buttercups he has solo, some solo stuff he's done an album in spanish oh wow so yeah and, and reading in the bio uh apparently this is like the heaviest thing he's done so far right yeah, he's not particularly, he's a, a really funky groove guy, you know, yeah. really uh, like with some rap and he's a great, great lyricist. Um, you know, he's like watching him write things on the fly. And that was how it was with the Young Turk. Mm-hmm. We do a session and record a couple songs and I'd go home at night, come back in the morning, they'd have two new songs, lyrics, wow. melody, everything done. They're just, that's how he is. Very prolific, very talented. Um, you know, he's, he would say one of, I would say that he is one of the, the closest uh, people to being a genius that I know. Mm. Oh, cool. So, yeah, yeah I like bright. his voice. You know, at first it started. I'm like, oh, this interesting, you know, vocals. But then, as, as the album went on, I really got used to it. And yeah, I, it really goes with the music. It fits, and there's a lot of really cool songs. Agreed. The first song I, I liked a lot. What was that, Lou? Agreed. I agree with you. Uh, what other songs? Yeah, and I think it's you know, I think Jimmy and I talk about this. There's the uh, we call it the Rhett five and the drummer and young Turk. And I laugh about it still because Rhett has a thing where he's really an artiste mm-hmm. in the true sense, you know, and he wants, and he'll, Oh, wow. I have to go this way. And like, and you can show him that it's going to come out on one, mm-hmm. whether he sings up or down, or he's going to land on one. 
but he doesn't get that. Like he's, you know, and we're like, no, and Jim and Bob and I are all like, okay, we can still have that field, but we all have to know where, where one is. We can't just arbitrarily each choose one. Okay. There's your one. There's your one. There's your one. And okay. We're all going to land on one at the same time or our own same time. And it's going to be a mess. And so you have to rein wet in and uh, on that. And so, you know, we butt heads every now and then, but ultimately it turns out really well. And he sings certain ways that I've tried to get him to change. Um, you know, he'll roll things. He, you know, has different vocal sounds. He'll shape his sounds of his voice. And sometimes like, come on, let's, let's minimize that. But, you know, at the end of the day, when you listen back to it, once you get past the initial, because when I did the demo, I took it to a friend of mine, was a manager and I played it for her and she goes, okay, so you're kidding, right? That's what she said to me. I had to listen to the whole, my hard work on the demo, which got them signed to Geffen and got a lot of other labels out to see them. But she just like, you know, it was late at night and I'm like, it was not what I wanted to hear. And then just leans forward and goes, you're kidding, right? I'm like, no, I'm not. She goes, that voice? Seriously? Uh, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> anyway, so, so, you know, with those things that are what I call characteristics of his voice, you know, he's got a, he's, he's got that stylized thing, yeah. but, uh, but I love it. And so we go yeah, I think with sometimes it. it brings a lot of character to the music. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it, it, it works. It works very well. And Jim, and in this one, Jim and Rhett wrote the material on the four fifties and he, um, uh, and so I was supposed to go to Atlanta for the writing session and uh, something had happened. I'd injured my shoulder and I was like, I just could not get comfortable. There's no way I was going to get on a plane. It was five in the morning when I was going to go, going to go to the airport and I had to call it. I can't get on a plane. So they wrote it. So I wound up show, showed up in Miami and just ran the songs down uh, one at a time would make some suggestions on tempos, feels, and uh, sometimes a little arrangement thing and very minor. You know, I'd love to take credit for, oh, my God, I shaped everything. But it was very, very minor. A few things I did do. And uh, and we would run it down in the same room. And you have to remember, I've been recording remotely for a long time. It was a great, like, when you hear the bass and drum tracks, those are live, one take. Right. Like, we don't, you know, it's not like they're reinventing the wheel. But in terms of a feel and tight, yeah. you know, and we we just, I learned those songs like one or two times and we had the tracks done. So it was a really rewarding experience. And of course, it was in Miami and it was sunny and hot and beautiful. And you go outside and it's it was like beautiful as opposed to here when I could go outside and I fall on my ass because it's all ice. <laughs> yes. Uh, Lou, you got something? I should- oh, what I like about the, the, the album itself, uh, aside from the songs and the performances, is the production. Like, you know, you mm. could tell that it was, you know, produced in a modern age but it still has like that vintage sound like it doesn't sound overly compressed the instrumentation sounds like there's warmth and depth to it um you know it's because i'm an audiophile so i'm always listening on the production for anything that i play either through my phone or on my computer and I'd have to say it was it's probably one of the best produced albums I've heard in the last five years. So, uh, wow, that's a that's a big compliment. I appreciate it. You know, we Jim and I and Jim deserves a lot of credit because Jim is. 
you know, he's probably more a Satriani, Eddie Van Halen style guitarist, which you don't hear on this album, right? Mm-hmm. So for him, it was, it was a, you know, he had to kind of walk a tightrope to uh, deal with some of the things we were, we were asking of him, you know, and he, and he really did a great job. But Jim and I worked hard to separate guitar parts and make sure there was some distinction in things. And we referenced things prior to getting to Miami. And, you know, one of them was um, the Stones album. Um, of course, now I can't think of it. Exile? Sorry? Was it Exile? No, it wasn't Exile. It Sticky was, uh, Fingers? Sticky Fingers. And, uh, you know, the guitar parts are so well done and separated. Yeah, they're like winged in, you know. Yeah. They are. And yeah. so that was that was the goal on this. And then, of course, I, I wound up with um, Chris Collier. I was looking to the Brotherhood of Metal. I wanted a great engineer to do the album, to mix it. And so I started listening to everything and I, so I'm listening and I'm, I'm listening to different things and I'm listening to last in line on my iPhone and it sounds like things going to blow up. It sounds great. It sounds huge. I can hear everything. Like I can hear decay on the drums. I can the guitar. Everything sounds phenomenal. So I asked around and I found Jeff Pilsner told me about, it was Chris Collier. And so I contacted Chris and we wound up Chris mixing the album, the Rods album, Brotherhood of Metal. And uh, so I was like, okay, he's the guy. And uh, so then he, uh, he produced the Kennedy album and did a fantastic job on that as well. And so when it came to the four fifties, it was, it was a no brainer to me to have Chris be involved, but we also had Jack Douglas involved. So Jack Douglas, Chris Collier mixed the, the album and Jack Douglas mixed the album. Um, so what we did was at the end of it, we just decided which one we thought had the best, uh, mix for the song. And that's what you hear on the album. And Jack Douglas was the, uh, you can see why he's such a great producer. He had some great ideas in terms of what to take out or how to feature something. He did a great, very musical, musical job. So, um, uh, you know, I see why, why Jack Douglas has been, uh, been around for so long and such a high level, great producer. James. Actually, I, I, I enjoyed some of the songs. So, like, I got a huge, and I know this isn't probably what you were going for, but I got a bunch of Iggy Pop vibes for some of the, some of the songs there. And I don't, and I don't know why. I think it's because of the voice uh, of the of the singer. I just got a lot of. It was just. It was something that you didn't expect. You didn't expect that type of voice to come out of that type of music. And it was kind of. It was. It was <clears throat> different. And uh, the guitar licks were were it was always they, they were it was like rolling stones they, they came in but when they came in you could you notice them and they were they were there and they were sharp and they sounded great so i i really enjoyed uh there was some you know there were some parts that not my cup of tea but that's because i'm more the black metal fan in this whole group so mm-hmm. i'm you know wayne wayne has tolerated my music for a few times so <laughs> <laughs> well you know what I'll, i want to speak to that but um if you notice in the picture here it looks like there's a specter with headphones right over your right shoulder. That's okay. So to be honest, <laughs> uh, we are remodeling our guest bedroom in our apartment for a workout room. And that's just so a you- bunch of junk. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it. Uh, oh, that's a, uh, that's a fan and a uh, yoga mat roller. <laughs> and my, and, and a, yeah, uh, okay. Are yeah. you, 
Are you guys are you guys buying this from the voice of God that it's a fan and a yoga mat? No. That looks Absolutely like some kind not. of Absolutely there's not. A, no. There's some kind of specter looking and, over and, and that is a Honduran wood mask that my wife bought somehow. And yeah. He's just hanging out. <laughs> Was it from Honduras man. at least? <laughs> so anyway, to ask, so. answer that. I mean, he is a obviously had Jagger influences, Iggy Pop influences, um, uh, you know, New York Dolls, uh, Johansson, yeah, yeah, Michael Monroe. I think he right. Um, I mean, he just, you know, he's he was definitely those Lou Reed, like you know, Velvet Underground. He was like, that, those were his influences, you know. Well, yeah, he's more stuff. of a feel singer than a technical singer. Yeah, I agree. Right, right. But that's I, what sold the sorry, music to me is to uh, to me. I don't, I don't, I. I I think it's a compliment what James said comparing him to Iggy Pop. I think, uh, yeah, I do too. Yeah, I think actually it's a huge compliment. Um, I think showing your roots is totally um, cool. I think you, we all listen and learn, and you kind of absorb, and then you spit it back out, and you hopefully in your own version of it. But there's no reason to hide your roots if you love something and you ingest it. It's going to come out one way or the other, and you know, unless it's a cheap derivative version like a lot of my drum licks i'm just putting that out there um <laughs> you know it's a it's a good thing and and someone like lou reed or even a bob dylan it's it's really about whether you like their voice or not you remember it and it's about how the the emotions it convey same thing mm-hmm. with the mm-hmm. singer you know i think that's what was good about him i have no idea if he's technically a good singer or not nor do i care what i cared about is he made me feel something you know right. and i'm a I'm a huge Dylan fan. Same and, here. Uh, yeah. My yeah. daughter's a music teacher and she's a singer and she had a group called the uh, Pixie Chicks from the time she was nine. And I put up a video of them at Hershey Park Star Pavilion on YouTube if you want to look for the Pixie Chicks with a, I think it's a Z, C-H-I-C-K-Z. Uh, but they, um, she's always been into music. She's a great singer. And but I cannot get her to love Bob Dylan. She's like, oh my God, the voice, I can't. I'm just, he goes, I know the songs are great. But like, just listen to some of the, like, mm, can't do it. Can't do it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm a big Dylan fan. I love, like, I get past the uh, the fact that uh, the vocal stylings, I think are cool. That's what sells the song. I sometimes. actually like his, I like his voice. And I named uh, one of my children Dylan. Uh, mm. So there you go. The guitarist and, the 450s so did so also well that makes him very cool in my book mm-hmm. <laughs> he's jimmy is a very very cool guy it's a very very bright guy and uh, very accomplished and uh, playing guitar and writing songs is one of the many talents he has i didn't re- recognize the iggy uh pop comparisons until james mentioned it and i can see that but i was actually hearing uh, this is going to sound really varied but you know, I'm I'm weird like that. Um, I was actually thinking more Degeneration, which was sort of like a, a punk band from the 90s, almost like and uh, they yeah. stole heavily, not stole, but they were influenced heavily by that era of music as well. But but the craziest comparison that I can give it what it reminded me of. And I mean this with the highest compliment because it's one of my favorite albums is the UFO album Lights Out, produced by Ron Nevinson, because there was an 
there was one thing that album had that other UFO studio albums didn't have, and that was orchestration. And the moment I heard orchestration in the album, I'm like, ah, this kind of reminds me of the Lights Out album, uh, the more I listened to it. And it made me appreciate the the 450s album that much more. Um, keyboard player, where- the keyboard player, Ryan, who actually was a keyboard player in Young Turk. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he's a keyboard player in the 450s, although he doesn't get the credit he deserves. But if you listen to Black Tar, I was like, Ryan, that's the coolest freaking part, you know. He, but Ryan was, um, Ryan's great, and he's great at orchestrating. And he's great at doing, like, for me, keyboard players just come in and start slamming a keyboard, a keypad or whatever. It sounds great underneath the, certain things, but it doesn't, like you're saying, orchestrating. It's not the same deal. And uh, Ryan definitely brings in orchestrated parts that kind of weave in and out and support melody lines. And uh, so he, he did a great job on it. And if you listen to Black Tar, that line that ascends, I'm like, that, that was such a cool idea for that song. So, you know, Ryan is definitely a very, very talented guy. He's a great engineer as well. Um, he does all, That's what he does for a living for the most part, engineering. Very any cool. spe- any specialty in engineering or just normal stuff? Because I mean, sorry, that's that's one. Of, I I work in a field that we have we deal with a lot of engineers, and they can be quirky. The best way I like to put it. <laughs> quirky, okay. Um, that sounds very euphemistic, but okay. Uh, it, well, it's because because I deal with a lot of uh, <clears throat> nuclear engineers, so mm. and they can be quirky. Work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in other words don't give him a bomb ladies and gentlemen that's all he has, he has to say well, it's funny because um bass player in the rods gary before he left gary's an expert at cornell of microlithographic uh, technology and so gary gary's a little quirky and some of his friends you know are brilliant and uh, I, I get what you're saying but quirky jimmy on the other hand um is a brilliant uh, mathematician i think he holds some kind of patent on the Patriot missile. And, uh, you know, Jimmy, the guitarist is, is a brilliant guy. And, uh, but, uh, what was I saying about the quirky? I lost my train of thought. Now we're talking about this dealing with, Oh, with Ryan engineering. Ryan is, uh, not that way at all. Ryan's like the sweetest guy. His engineering that he does is he does a lot of corporate um, okay. engineering. So he does a lot of that now. He does studio work, but he does a lot of big corporate events. He just got hired by, and I can't remember the name of the company, but a major company in Miami. And, uh, but that's what he does. And, you know, but Ryan's a people guy and he's a sweet guy and he's, you know, he's a good guy. All right, cool. Uh, Is there going to be another 450s album? We're talking about getting together late spring and uh, in Atlanta and then, talking about recording maybe late summer early fall in miami so we'll see what happens i mean unfortunately covid is really has been driving the bus on this stuff right yeah you know who knows it's it's tough to go play we wanted to play dates we have a bunch of videos coming out now and we're still making them Mm -hmm. but we're not making them together we're making them in our own studios you know we're doing Mm -hmm. some green screen stuff now and but um you know it's tough covid has uh COVID's been a, a bitch. Yeah. On you know, on all on all levels. Right. And what about your uh your solo stuff? Because you released uh, the album Warriors like, like a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. 
Are you going to do another one? We have three songs that we're just in the process of finishing and uh, looking for a label. Uh, we released it basically basically on our own, but uh, we did very, very well uh, with that. And uh, the label we I chose was just I wanted to get it out. And because COVID hit it, and I was like, we can't sit around here for until COVID goes away. I know initially they said, oh, we got to ride this out for two weeks. And uh, <laughs> it's been a long two weeks. <laughs> it's been That's a long two weeks. And mm-hmm. I, I thought to myself, two, yeah, no, not two weeks. So we kicked it in gear and we hired Chipster as our publicist. And he just got us tons and tons of reviews and interviews for the Kennedy album. And it was very well received and I'm really proud of the album. So yeah, we have new, we have a lot of material, but we have three songs that we're going to have to shop shortly, and hopefully we'll get a deal that will give us some kind of support. Very cool. Anybody got anything else? Well, um, next time you come on, I want to ask you about your production. If you'll hopefully you'll come on again, especially the Blue Cheer album. I've always been curious about that because it's kind of a curio out there. But I want to thank uh, you for your time. I've been a fan of your uh, the Rods for a long time, so thank you. Oh, thank you guys so much. I really enjoyed it. And I would love to talk about Blue Cheer because um, I love Dickie and Paul and uh, they were they were big influences on me. And uh, when up until I saw them on Blue Ch- on uh, American Bandstand, I was playing top 40 music, teak, 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 you know. Yeah. And uh, suddenly I saw these guys with long hair and they blew up my TV set. And I went, oh, okay, now we get it. And I bought another bass drum and immediately... <laughs> started cracking cymbals and breaking sticks and the rest is history for me that's never hasn't stopped of course i don't break sticks or crack cymbals now because i eventually learned some technique but yeah i'd love to talk about blue cheer i love those guys well, we got plenty of time you can do whatever you want oh if you well have so to, if you have to go then no we no, can no. Save it for another time but if you want to talk go ahead I, there's no yeah problem. i'm just curious how did you get involved i was uh, the that, beast is back which they sense relief is the the best of Blue Cheer Megaforce years, which is interesting because they only had one album on Megaforce. Had one album, but, right. Um, right. So what was it like working with them? Yeah. Well, how did you get involved with them and how did you, uh, you know, Johnny, you, uh, working with them? Johnny Z was the, uh, Johnny Z was the one who brought me into that project. And Paul Curcio and I were supposed to co-produce. And okay. now Paul, Paul Curcio has passed away. Paul Curcio managed music america where we had recorded the first metallica album was recorded there the rod some of the rods material albums have been recorded there um and so we were recording there and i met the guys and they you know been my heroes you know like those guys were paul whaley i loved his drumming you know i listened to all those i remember thinking and i remember after i remember i was probably 16 15 and 16 around the time those guys were you know, I was buying those albums and I remember they recorded on the pier and I thought, Oh, that is the coolest thing. They are so loud. They have to record outside on a pier. Outside, inside out. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. They have to set up all those amplifiers because no building could hold. And so I'm, I'm buying this whole story. Like, like that's a great <laughs> thing. They set up outside with all those amplifiers facing out across the water because, you know, otherwise it would just shatter windows and uh, so I'm buying this whole thing. They're fucking cool, man. They're the loudest band. And, and, you know, of course it's the album didn't sound that great, but it was outside with all those amplifiers. So it was the coolest thing, but you know, I bought into that whole thing, but I always loved Dickie's voice. I love Paul's drumming. And so to meet them, like Paul, 
had had some problems with drugs. So Paul would have bouts of depression where, and, you know, we talked about this and I went through it when the rods reformed and we started playing festivals overseas. Um, but Paul was very insecure about his drumming. And I would, would talk to him about, you're an innovator. You know, you don't need to worry about what other drummers play. You know, you're an innovator. You're, an, you know, the original. You need to just, whatever you hear and you play, that's it. That's the cool shit. Like, don't have to worry about what would somebody else play because they're probably copying you. So we'd have these little pep talks and they, they would work. He would finally come around. But there were a lot of times when we had to shut it down for a little while until we could get him back on track. And a lot of it was depression from, you know, his years of drug abuse and, uh, and, and use. And uh, so, you know, those were a little bit trying, but he was such a gentle soul, such a sweet guy. And Dickie, I, I just love Dickie. And when I did the Possessed album, we went and hung out at his house. And Cliff Coltrary, the record uh, exec at the time, we went, instead of taking us out to dinner, we said, let's go buy food. We went out and we bought a shitload of cheeses and cold cuts and, and snack foods we bought everything we could and we brought it to them because they were poor they yeah. were living they were impoverished really and they had a little trailer they rehearsed in and uh but i love dickie and uh and paul and you know dickie was a great bass player underrated bass player like he was very very tight it was uh i i figured he would be but his sound that ampeg sound and get to the bass with the pick um, the way he played, it was precise and it had that grit. And I love that. Um, you know, he had his little demons once in a while too. And he came in one night for a vocal session with a bottle of gin with about this much left in it. I'm, re- I'm ready to sing. Let's do it. <laughs> like eight o'clock vocal session or something scheduled. And he comes in, let's go. I'm like, you know, Dickie, I don't think it's a good, like tonight's probably not a good night. Let's do it tomorrow. Like, I don't think that, you know, I'm not into it tonight. Let's do it okay we're good we're good let's let's go hang out somewhere and uh so he had his moments too where he was just be over the top and uh, but you know one the guys would struggle to play sometimes like they were they had ideas and they maybe their chops weren't quite up to it and they had a long song which is ride i can't remember the title ride something a motorcycle song it was a cool song it was yeah, pretty low yeah anyway what's it called I think it's just called Ride. Ride. So yeah, I got the album in the pile back there. But it was it was a long song for them, and um, so Paul Curcio had not been around at all, and so they were recording, and and uh, you know I would go out and, and talk with the guys, and we, so came to the so I was actually upstairs with the uh, no I was in the control room at that point. Paul Curcio comes in, and. Chris thought he, Chris, the engineer thought that Paul was going to address the band. And so he has the talk back mic on. So it's open. Everybody can hear him, their headphones. And Paul goes in, Oh my God, they've been doing the song forever. They suck. Just tell them it's good enough. and Just get it done. Just get it done. Quit fucking around with this song. And the next thing you hear is a clang. The bass drops. And you hear this guy running to come in and I'm like, Paul, you better go. So Paul takes off and Dickie at, at that point, like Dickie was, you know, like a hell's angels guy. Like he was a tough guy. He was a scrappy guy. He wasn't going to take shit like that. And it was a humiliating statement. And they knew I was with them all the way, but, but uh, they locked him out. He was done at that point. 
They didn't want to see him, talk to him, and he wasn't allowed back in the control room again. And what we wound up doing was we kept working on the song, and the song you hear, and it was the first and only time I've ever cut two-inch tape. And we had a great take, but the second half kind of petered out. So we had a great first half. And then we had another take, and the second half was really picking up momentum, and it was kicking ass. And so we found a good edit point, and we edited the two-inch tape. And uh, that was it, what you hear on the album. That was the first time I'd ever, first and only time I've ever edited two-inch tape because people did it all the time. But I was terrified of editing two-inch tape. Was there a reason that they recorded some of their older material, like, you know, their version of Summer of Time Blues and Parchment uh, Farm, along with new material? Or I think it, I, I do. I think it was Johnny's request. I think he was was trying to capitalize on the past and, uh, you know, do a newer version that he owned and that they, they owned. Okay. And, uh, you know, I think that was it, trying to for the, the recognition gotcha. of who, the, who the band was. Is that and a Paul, fact that they, they never owned the rights uh, for anything for Vince of Us Erupt them? I don't think they own, I don't know what songs they wrote, but I'm sure that I don't even remember talking to them. I know they didn't write Summertime Blues, of course. No, that's but, yeah, uh, of course that was Eddie Cochran, right? Right, yeah. but um, as far as the material they did write, I, they were so screwed by everybody. And then Dickie was like like the old Delta Blues musician, you know, somebody who would come along, he'd sign a contract, you know, just yeah. to get some money. And of course, signed everything away, and uh, so was not going to get any money, and which was sad because you know such a talented guy. And my friend Duck McDonald from Thrasher, but from Shaken Street. Um, Kim Simmons and Blue Cheer, Duck was managing them before before Dickie died and Paul died, and they were they were finally starting to make money. Duck was really doing a great job with the band, and um, you know Dickie was getting paid to do interviews. He was getting paid for gigs and getting paid for merchandise, and they were they were finally realizing some of their hard work, you know, financially. Yeah. And uh, it's a shame that both of them, you know, died. And they didn't have a few more years to cash in on, on their legacy because they deserved it. Well, thank you. I, I'm I am a Blue Cheer fan, and uh, as their mine. yeah, their career was interesting because their first two albums are heavy, and then they kind of go into this little psychedelic phase with Randy Holden, and then they sort of do a country rock thing, which actually sounded pretty good, but you know, hard rock metal wasn't respected then which is ironic now it is, but back then, you know, they're like, you know, those long haired hippies who cares mm-hmm. about them. Yeah. irony. They're now respected. That's right. Yeah. But wow. thank you. I was a fan and uh, I was, I'm a particular fan of that album. Matter of fact, we used to cover nightmare. She's a nightmare mm. because, you know, I had a crappy amp set and I go, I can get that sound. <laughs> <laughs> that was, you know, that's probably the takeaway from that was Paul Rainier came in. Is it Paul? Yeah. Really nice guy, really yeah. and a good guitarist. But he came in and he had a very flanged out like um, sound, and it was hard to get. Like I just the blue cheer that I knew had that, and I know that Lee played out of tune, and his whammy bar was all over the place, and you know stuff was just nasty out of tune. It was also freaking awesome, you yeah, know. It was just awesome, inc- incredible, you know. I mean. It, that to get someone to tune it would sound terrible. I like it the way it sounded. Yeah. I do too. It was so yeah. heavy and so it's like um, what is it, Heartbreaker? What's the song? But John Paul Jones and Jimmy Page are not in tune with each other, and it makes it sound huge because they're slightly off. 
yeah. out of out of tune. But anyway, so I was expecting that kind of in-your-face heavy tone, and so he came in with a flangey kind of tone and tried to work with those. But probably my biggest disappointment was that, and that was the modern sound at that point yeah. in time. But it wasn't the blue cheer sound, and so I you know, tried to work with it. But I would have preferred a you know going back to more of that Lee sound. And uh, I know I know some people just think he was the worst guitarist, but he was awesome for what they did. He was awesome, in my opinion. Look, any band that's built, they're so heavy, they'll turn the air into cottage cheese. That's cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, they had all those amps on the dock because it couldn't be facing buildings. And I was like, yeah, those guys are heavy. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Well, I wanted to piggyback on something you mentioned before. You mentioned Shaken Street. Um, if nobody knows who that is, that was uh, Ross the Boss's band post uh, The Dictators pre-Manowar. Oh, and as yeah. most fans of metal, especially Man of War, know, you were the original drummer in Man of War, having played mm-hmm. on their demo. Um, of course, Man of War has gone on to be the uh, American band that's like soccer. They're huge everywhere else but the United States. But uh, I would have to say of the material they've released post Ross the Boss's um exit from the band um as as a fan i could say that i'm more of a fan of what ross is doing now than what manowar is doing now but that's not to take away anything from their first five albums um do you still have a relationship with any of the members of i still yeah i have a channel of communication to joey we you know he wished me good luck on my new album i i sent him a, a link for it and uh ross and i you know we we talk not all the time, but we talk regularly. We have a good relationship. I love Ross. I think Ross was, I totally agree with what you're saying. Ross was the catalyst for that material. He wrote great material. Um, Shaken Street. Ross is a guy who's really, and I hope he gets more recognition than he, than he gets. I hope that Ross, the boss band, the RBT band continues to rise because Ross is a great guy, but he's, you know, the dictators, legendary stuff. And, and the same with, you know, Ross's new stuff is fantastic. And I think his stuff with Manowar is legendary as well. And, uh, you know, I know that being in a room with Eric, Joey, Ross, and myself, you know, we were the genesis of that, what became Manowar. I know the power and the, the just incredible, how incredible that we were um, with that. And I have some recordings that I made that show that power. The, the demo kind of sucked the life a little bit out of it because of the way it was recorded, but it was powerful and uh, the band was phenomenal. And of course the band went on to be huge worldwide. And as you said, they are still huge worldwide except in America, which is not surprising to me because America is, is really the pockets of metal are diverse and they're sp- spread out in this huge country and it's tough to bring it all together. And, and for whatever reason, they didn't click here the way they did in, you know, in Europe and South America and so on, Japan. But Ross definitely is uh, great. And Joey, man, I sent him a, an email recently just saying, you know, you're playing better than ever. I watched a video of his bass solo and I'm like, man, you're playing better than ever. So, which says a lot because he's a great bass player. Yeah, I, I would have this, uh, Eric Adams still to this day. I mean, one of the best, definitely one of my favorites. And what um, a nice the guy. The man could do no wrong. Super, super guy. Great, great human being. 
No, Into Glory Ride said it was produced by them, but you produced it, didn't you? No. Wasn't it you? You did no, not produce that? You, I was no? just I was just part of hanging out there. You, know, you were hanging working. out. I was just there working, okay. you know, playing my drums and whatever. All right. He was we, just hanging out. I'm guys. pretty sure that you produced <laughs> that, but all right, I'll take your word on that. <laughs> yeah. I was Manny's gonna keep asking you questions that you say my, yes. I just hope you my, know that. I was there for the uh for the demo, then after that I was not there. So so pre-loincloth. Okay. Pre, no, they pre were Nickelodeon. <laughs> yeah, we didn't. Yeah, there were. Okay. The only, I can tell you there were no loincloths. I can tell you that there are basic, <laughs> there, there's basic, a picture that I see on the internet every once in a while. That's that's of Man of War. Are, do you recognize this picture? Oh dear God! They're not wearing Man of Dance. Wait, that's not Man of War. Right? That's not Man of War. It's no, it's, it is. That no, is Eric, though, second to left. It is, that is and that's that was, Joey that was, on the far right. Um, yeah. yeah, that was that was something prior to that was some uh, concert band they had, some touring thing, whatever, like a Godspell or something. I don't know. Right, well, there goes that that rumor that everybody thinks that's Man of War. Nobody believes that, so that's okay. Good. Now I know. The hey, they had to make a living somehow, but they weren't Man of War then. Yeah. All right. Good to know. Hey, we all have a past, you know. It leads yeah, us, but Joey. Joey was recording All Men Play on 10 at Pyramid with Alex and, uh, you know, Duck and I were there and they were like, Joey was, Joey had his vision from day one. Mm. Like he was always heavy. He knew where, where he was going with Man of War. And I remember calling me and telling me about the name. I finally got the name. It's the greatest fucking name ever. Man of War. <laughs> well, the, so. boss, the boss is interesting because you pointed out he was into Dictators and he was Shaken Street, which had more of a punk what would now be called indie rock vibe. And then you go to Manowar, um, which is, you know, did power metal even exist a term in 1982 when that first album came out? But they definitely, I would say, pioneered that style. Yeah, and, I would too. Yeah. And lyrically, you can hear bands that took a lot from them. I mean, they made it their own thing. So I think... I have mixed feelings about Manowar. I like them, but I think sometimes they take themselves too seriously. That's my opinion, but I do like them. But I think as an influence, I think they're overlooked. And I think they're overlooked mainly because of image, not because of music. And that's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. I I agree. Lyrically and uh, musically, I think they influence a lot of bands, especially out of Sweden. And I mean, you know, all of Europe, really, uh, and South America. So... They deserve a lot of credit for that, which, you know, I agree that maybe the loincloths overshadowed some things, but, um, you know, in the long run, that'll, that'll fade away. And, and, uh, you know, music will be the one that the thing that stands the test. But I, I do agree that I like man of war all across the board, but the stuff I like the most would be what Ross had his hand in. It's not because, you know, I like Ross. Ross came to play in New York. We, we were talking and I said, we're playing it at, um, not the Iridium where we were playing. Uh, but anyway, somewhere in New York. And he goes, maybe I'll come to the show. I go, bring your guitar. He goes, okay. And he came up and we did Johnny Be Good. And the crowd went nuts. And it was a blast to play with Ross again. He's such a great guy. He came up to me and... Uh, was it Blackthorn could... 51 in Elmhurst, Queens? What was it? No. Um, okay. Like Hell's Kids. I'm trying to think. I can't think of the club. But when we played Keep It True, this guy, Ross was the surprise guest secret guest right and they killed it they they were phenomenal but um i'm backstage getting ready to go on girl school is playing and 
we're going on next and I'm getting my drum kit together. So this hooded figure comes up to me, puts his hands around me from behind, gives me a bear hug, you know, it was Ross. Like said, made some comment or something. I was like, what the fuck is this guy? And I turn around and went, Ross, no. But he's such a great guy. And, uh, you know, I think he deserves, deserves to uh, get way more recognition for his contributions than he has to date. But hopefully that'll change. Yeah, definitely. I believe so. All right. Anything else? Everybody good? Just one last thing I want to say. What's that? Kill em All is one of the best produced albums ever. Thank you, Paul Curcio. Thank you. That's it. <laughs> oh, so let me let me just say nothing against Paul Curcio. Chris Bubach, if anyone, it was Metallica and Chris Bubach. Paul Curcio, not involved. Wow. I take it back, but it's still one of the best produced albums ever. Thank you very much. Well, well, I just want to thank you again, Carl, for not only yeah. telling me your Blue Cheers story, but for coming on. And like I said, I've been a fan for a long time. So thank you. Yeah, thank man, you, much, guys. Much this respect to you. Yeah. yeah, no, I really appreciate it. I appreciate the support and it's been fun. So I'd love to come on again sometime. And uh, I appreciate you guys listening to the 450s because it's a different style. And yeah. uh, you guys really definitely delved into it. And and uh, I appreciate that. That, well, that wasn't what I was expecting from you. That's for sure. So, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, good music no. is good music. You can't deny yeah. it. Yep. And that's yeah. all thanks to online metal promo, which we are kind of working with a little bit, having all these, all of his, um, his roster of the bands that he, ha- uh, that he does promo for. So thank you to Ben and online ben, metal promo. Ben has been uh, doing publicity for me for, I don't know, a decade. I don't mm-hmm. know. He's a great guy. Yeah. yeah, he's a very nice guy. But the yeah. online metal promo.net. So if any bands need any promo worth, please hit him up and uh, absolutely. And uh, where can people find you? Your website, um, Facebook, therods.com, the450s.com, and kennedyband.com. And it's C A N E D Y because everybody, the bane of my existence has been, oh, Kennedy, okay, K E N N, no, no, no. no. <laughs> so C A N E D Y band.com. Very cool. And again, thank you very much for coming on. Had a lot of fun. And, uh, I wish you luck with the 450s and, and good luck on the next album as well. Thank you very much. And uh, everybody go to ratsalreview.com. Lou, do you have anything else for your shows? I know you just put an episode out today. Anyone? Yeah, I, uh, well, it's a two-parter. Part one is up. I interviewed Mr. John Patrick Brennan, who is a producer and the main songwriter for the show, The Last Drive-In with Joe Bob Briggs on the Shutter app produced by AMC. And he's also producer of the soon to be released trauma movie, Shakespeare, sorry, hashtag Shakespeare shitstorm. I had, uh, I ran into John actually at the clutch concert back in October and, you know, we caught up and I said, Hey, if you ever want to come on the podcast and promote what you're doing, I'd love to have you. So, you know, the first episode was very trauma related, uh, in case anyone doesn't know out there, Troma, that's the film company that released Toxic Avenger and Class of Newcomb High. And the next episode is going to be more uh, Last Drive-In centric with elements of Troma in there. So he was a blast and uh, it was great to have him on. Uh, you can catch that over on the Music is Live podcast channel and go to musicislivepodcast.com. And uh, I just wanted to say um, the the last week um, has been uh, rather 
a uh, crazy one for me. Um, the guys know that, uh, unfortunately, we uh, lost my mother on uh, Wednesday, February 2nd. And Wayne, Manny, and James and Greg were kind enough and, you know, understanding to give me my privacy and uh, let me take care of what I had to take care of. And yesterday we laid her to rest. She's with my father and my brother right now. And um, love you, Ma. Thank you for being my first fan because she believed in me as a writer and as a journalist. So uh, I'll never forget that. When I went into a, uh, a career in uh, television broadcasting, she said, I don't get it. You were good in high school with the newspaper. You were a good writer. You're good <laughs> asking questions. Why you work for MTV? What are you, you stupid? You know, stuff like that. <laughs> Old Greek mom. And uh, love you, mom. Miss you, mom. And thank you to Wayne, Manny, and James and uh, Greg for letting me have that time in private to mourn with the family. But you know, I'm back and I'm good to go. You're back and you're going to kick ass. Thank you. My, my condolences. And that was beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, really sorry to hear that. Yeah. So, okay, everybody, rightsidereview.com. And we will see you guys next week. Bye. Stay metal. Don't be money. <laughs> <laughs> Looking for some new podcasts to listen to? Well, look no further than the Rats Eye Review Network. Rats Eye Review is taking over the podcast world with plenty of shows to choose from within their network of entertaining programming, including the flagship show Rats Eye Review with Wayne Noon, Greg Noggle, and Lou Mavs, as well as occasional co-hosts Manny Mejias and James Lilquist. We also have the official Rats Eye Review spinoffs, such as Album vs. Album, Screams from the Grave, where we discuss beloved yet forgotten hard rock and metal albums of the past and a King Diamond podcast called This Broadcast Belongs to Them. We've also got Old Man Metal's Musings, The Right Opinion with Harrison Bergeron, Beyond Bushido, a podcast dedicated to pro wrestling and MMA with James Elquist and Eric Adams. No relation to the guy from Manowar or the mayor of New York City. The Vieira Vault with Ralph Vieira. Schnackamagab! Schnackamagab to you too, Ralph. The Timo Tolki podcast featuring Stradivarius and Avalon founding member Timo Tolki. The BS Sessions with Mark and Jerry. Just the cheese, please. A podcast dedicated to cheesy films of the 1980s with Tara J and Adam. The Friday Night Party with the great Harry Barnett and Evie. And the Music is Life podcast with Lou Mavs. The Ratsaw Review Network is your go-to one-stop shop for the best podcasts out there today. Go to RatsawReview.com for more info. And to find out where you can find, follow, subscribe, and comment on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and all streaming platforms. The Ratsaw Review Network. We're, We're taking over. over. Grrrr.